heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin fireworks shows. Have a pretty awesome conversation for you guys today, just in time for the American Independence Day this weekend. Ben and I were joined by Alex Svetsky, and the conversation got pretty deep. We talked about politics, we talked about economics, we talked about socialism, we talked about the mask hypocrisy. We talked about the fundamental pillars of liberty and private property, freedom, and what is necessary for societies to flourish and be prosperous, and what's necessary for people to enjoy a good quality of life. You guys are going to love this episode. I really enjoyed listening back to it while I was editing it. So let's go ahead and jump into it, and I will come back and talk with you guys at the end of the show. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Alex, how's it going, man? Good, brother. How, um, how are you gentlemen doing? Doing good. We got Ben Prentice here in the house today joining us uh, with Alex Svetsky. Is that how you say it, Svetsky? Yeah, you got it, man. Fuck shit. You know, everyone calls it something else, um, <laughs> so you nailed it. Yeah, perfect. I think I want to preface, like I've read a few tweets now that said something along the lines of, what were libertarians' responses to this pandemic? Or how on earth would libertarians have ever handled something like this? I find that premise hilarious because it exposes how little people know about the, the libertarian ideology, but even more so, you were talking about some nuance that you had around the specifics that people don't understand of, of private property and certain requirements that you have, sort of like a social contract that you have with anybody who's on your particular private property. You want to tell us a little bit about your thoughts there? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the examples, and I was listening to, um, I mean, we see this all over Twitter, right? So you've got people like Taleb on one side saying that libertarians are idiots, or at least thankfully in some of his more um in some of his tweets he said pseudo libertarians because because i think that's a little bit more correct is like you know people running around and not really understanding the idea of private property but still calling themselves libertarians well and, and although i don't agree with a lot of Taleb's stuff and particularly his a little bit more statist bent around you know how things like this should be dealt with the rules and laws being enforced upon people as opposed to allowing them to choose so so that there's a lot of there's a lot of mess and entanglement of opinions here the the nuance that i wanted to separate is you know the the wearing of masks so the voluntary wearing of masks and you know the, the notion around that being a way to slow the spread of a pandemic versus the enforcement of wearing a mask and, and why why they're different and and how you know co- coming from a place of let's not even call it libertarian ideology let's just call it libertarian fucking principles because you know principles come before ideology you know ideologies are you know a collection of these principles so if if we start from you know the principles of freedom personal responsibility and some form of private property you'll find that it's perfectly fine for an individual to choose to wear a mask and it's also perfectly fine for another individual to choose not to and as an extension of private property and like let, let's just define private property for a moment it starts with you you're, you're your most important 
private property, you know, and then as an extension of that, it's anything that, you know, you own that you've legitimately created, bought using, but by exchanging time and energy, for example. So it's then perfectly fine for anyone to request and even demand someone who is on their private property, uh, for example, to wear a mask. And, and I think the problem that a lot of libertarians have, particularly people who, you know, really support the principle of freedom is having a mask mandated, you know, have, having the wearing of a mask mandated from some higher fucking power gives itself moral rights that none of the rest of us have. Or, or even someone telling me I have to do it because, you know, oh, safety for others or because you're killing old people or whatever some fucking bullshit reason. Like, the, the, the fact of the matter is... And and again, I'm separating here whether the the virus is real or not. I'll touch touch on that in a second because that's another bit of entanglement here which makes this whole argument a little bit more messy. But assuming that there is a a real pandemic that is spread through all of this talking to people, you know, and droplets flowing through the air, infecting us all, for example, if, if you choose to wear a mask, you're fundamentally protected from somebody who's, you know, choosing not to wear a mask. And, and in fact, the person who chooses not to wear a mask is the one at risk, you know, and fundamentally puts themselves at risk first and foremost, because by, by definition, if you choose to wear a mask, you, you know, you have that layer of protection. As I sort of mentioned in the beginning is like, even though I don't agree with, you know, a lot of what Tyler's recently said, I, you know, I do agree with his position that in a, in a pandemic type situations, masks are a good way to decrease the spread um, and in fact, probably the most you know, effective way to decrease the spread of something like this. Now, where I think it gets really messy is that this whole situation is exacerbated by the fact that most of us you know, realize this is a fucking scamdemic more than a pandemic. And the virus is you know, largely benign. You, you layer that with the state-based enforcement of wearing a mask based on really dumb reasons like that don't make logical sense, that, that are not consistent, you know, like... One day you're killing old people, the next day you're allowed to go fight for Black Lives Matter or whatever other fucking um, hashtag movement they've got. And, you know, this results in a lot of us having strong feelings against wearing a mask because it represents a form of cuckery. It's it's an inconsistent opinion, which, you know, that's where I come from. Like me personally, I don't wear a mask. The the location that I'm in, you know, lots of people are still wearing masks. You can't go into a shop without wearing masks and all that sort of stuff. And I understand, so I go into a shop and I wear a mask, but out on the street and stuff like that, that you will not see me wear a mask. Not a chance in hell because I know that I don't need to. But I think the key thing here is it does not mean that I cannot stay consistent with my value of freedom and personal property rights in line with, I'm going to use a Talibism here again one more time, the silver rule, you know, which is don't do unto others as you do not wish them to do unto you. So you can hold both opinions because they're they're logically consistent. And this is the nuance that dumb people just don't get. You know, it's always black or white to them. You say, oh, don't wear a mask. It means that you're for killing people, apparently. That they don't understand that nuance. And I think that's just an important separation to make that, you know, hopefully when people are arguing about this shit, they, you know, they realize that, you know, the libertarian approach, hey, once again, it's a superior approach. It means you can protect yourself and your private property if you believe that this is a real threat. Um, and then, you know, if you don't. You don't have to. And then, you know, let's see what eventuates from that. You know, it allows for an emergent decision to be made as opposed to a, um, an enforced decision by a central authority who really doesn't have any facts about what this thing is. That, that's sort of my piece on masks and how it relates to libertarianism, private property, etc. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Ben, you got any, any thoughts? 
Yeah, he mentioned personal responsibility. So I was wondering, Alex, could you elaborate on how that plays into this whole thing? Because you talked mostly about liberty there, about you know people's own individual decisions of whether or not to wear a mask. But how does a uh, personal responsibility come into this? And what maybe would be different about the world today were the state to have less power? Why does that personal responsibility part matter? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll take that from a philosophical standpoint. The more we give up our agency to an imaginary collective, be it the government, you know, the church, central bank, whatever collectivist um, institution, you know, we decide to give moral, ethical and economic rights to that we as individuals don't have. We remove layer by layer our personal agency, or in other words, our personal responsibility, and we're less able to make decisions like the decisions are almost like a muscle. You know, if you, if you don't make decisions, you know, you in life lose the muscle and the ability to make decisions. That's why, you know, and, and indecisiveness is a very weak, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's a very, very flaky, you know, way to live life. And, and in fact, I think one of the things that we're suffering from in life is, you know, people's inability to have a consistent line of thought because they can't make any decisions you know from logic because they've lost the ability uh, to make decisions for themselves they just outsource all of that to to somebody else you know whether it's their perceived safety or their ability to to make a decision for themselves etc so and and the more we do that like it sends us down a path of slowly by slowly removing you know the ability to think freely first of all to think critically you know to question things and then to make decisions that you know we believe are right for us uh, in an individual capacity and then what you basically become is a slave the person who doesn't make decisions for himself who has no personal responsibility is by definition a slave that's indentured servitude by definition so we're we're opting into slavery the more we outsource our responsibility to you know an imaginary collective and that that's again it's really it's a dangerous path to go down. And I mean, at the end of the day, despite how dangerous it is, I mean, that kind of a path always breaks because it, it doesn't scale well. Centralized authority always, always breaks back down into decentralized autonomy to an extent. It doesn't scale nicely. And the question is, do, do, we, do we get there by choice? Or, you know, does the whole system have to break down and blob in our face to, to get there? Yeah, that's sort of my take on personal responsibility. Uh, does that sort of answer what you were asking there, Ben, or...? Yeah, definitely. First and foremost, that people are not thinking logically. They're not thinking um, from foundational principles and they're not thinking systematically. They're jumping to the conclusions rather than forming the basis of their thoughts, which is pretty normal these days, I think, for a lot of people. But I'm going to say something that's probably pretty unpopular with my audience, but I, I really don't give a shit. I think that Taleb is super overrated. I don't know why he's mm -hmm. so popular. I don't think that he's written or said anything that's all that unique or interesting that hasn't been covered with a less status spin by Rothbard or Mises. I've never really understood it. I'm not going to sit here and shit on him because he's probably done way more with his life than I have. I just don't understand why he's so popular. But you look at this idea that, well, libertarianism is great unless we have situations like this, right? Then it calls for uh, a status response. Then we need that authority to tell us how to handle the situation or else we just, we wouldn't be able to handle it. It would, it would just overwhelm us and destroy us. If that logic were true and we were to follow it all the way to its logical conclusion, then we wouldn't see what we see because what we've seen this entire time is a constant narrative shift. And you don't see 
constant narrative shifts around the same idea if the the approach to that idea was logical to begin with right i mean you look at how we've seen the narrative shift around this first masks didn't work at all and whatever the ulterior motives there were it it's irrelevant first masks didn't work at all then it was about making sure that we did whatever we could to prevent the hospitals from getting overwhelmed then it was about flattening the curve then it was about staying inside your house until there was a vaccine and then it was about racial inequality. And that, and that suddenly became the much more important issue. And now we're seeing narrative spins talking about how the protests actually helped smooth out the curve for the coronavirus <laughs> because of science and reasons. You wouldn't ever see these type of narrative shifts from anybody who's approaching this problem from a foundational perspective, logically. Let's say you're, you're Talebian and you think, well, yeah, libertarians are great, but they don't understand the nuance. They don't know that sometimes we have to give up our freedom for these things. In the event of a crisis, we need a coordinated response. Well, then I'm here to tell you, you're going to have a lot of crises and they're going to grow in severity and they're going to grow in frequency. Because if that's what it takes for the state to tell you exactly what to do and you say, okay, how high? You know, when they tell you to jump, you say, all right, how high? You're going to get more crises more often and they're going to be worse every time. Yeah, man, you touched on a really important point there right at the end is that the incentive then for the state is to either manufacture or let's say even let's take the conspiracy component out of it. Let's say they don't manufacture these. When they do happen, the state is incentivized to take extremist approaches to them because, you know, the state as, a, as an entity itself, um, you know, wants to persist, wants to exist. And what you just said there is literally an argument that the, the state can use in its, in its favor to continue. There's a couple of things there as well that you mentioned at the start about Taleb. So me personally, like my, my journey into this kind of thinking, libertarian type thinking and everything has kind of been relatively organic. Like I only first read Rothbard and, and to be honest, like his first piece that I read was um, Anatomy of the State, that really small book. And that was in November of last year. I read For a New Liberty only two months ago you know, during this whole lockdown thing. So I, I was exposed to Taleb's work long before. It's really interesting for me, having come via Taleb's work first, then to hear Rothbard's stuff and to realize that Rothbard's a fucking, in a league of his own compared to Taleb. You know, Taleb's like a, for me, that the more I've looked at these um, quote unquote Austrian economists or, you know, these real libertarian thinkers who come from these first principles. It's been interesting for me to see Taleb's stuff. Not, not only is it, a relatively non it, it's it's not very new in terms of its thinking that there's there's some interesting stuff there about you know anti-fragility and all that sort of stuff which i think is cool mm -hmm. but you know his his four books or five books that he's written are all basically the same fucking thing just under a different title to be honest like you know if you've read one you've read them all first of all I, I think the biggest part that made me angry out of this whole thing is his position on libertarianism as you know a a functional format for individuals to operate in except when and, and that exception is such an inconsistency even with the shit that he writes like he you know he talks about these inconsistencies in logic being where you know problems happen and then here he is fucking espousing you know the exact same inconsistencies that he's apparently against so it's just it's just so fucking baffling for me to watch these people who think that the appropriate approach I'll, I'll actually add one more thing to that i'm listening to this book now and it's so painful it's, it's why uh economies rise and fall i don't know whether i'm a glutton for punishment or you know what the case might be i decided to listen to this audiobook which is slightly more um 
conventional economics. So it's, uh, it's from the great courses. So it's basically university lectures. And there's a guy called Peter Rodriguez who's in there, you know, discussing why economies rise and fall. So, you know, in, in the same breath that he talks about, you know, the importance of economies opening up, allowing for free markets to operate and all this sort of stuff as being part of the essence of why functional economies emerge. And, you know, talking about how incentives, the basis upon which, you know, human action ends up converging. He then goes and states things like, oh, but, you know, we've had these successes like China. So he, he fucking go, he, like he has the nerve to say something like China is, is a success because of their, um, because of their fucking approach. I, and I'm sitting there listening to this stuff. I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Like, right. he, Because he, the opposite is true. Yeah, exactly. So, so what, what he can't um, separate is the fact that, like, he, he makes the argument that, you know, China under whoever the guy before Xi Jinping was, like after Mao, um, when they started to open up, when, you know, like you said, the famous saying of the cat's going to catch a mouse, it doesn't matter what color the cat is kind of thing. So he was sort of making an argument for allowing people, you know, to make more decisions, right, to bring a little bit more liberty into the way they approach their economy, because to that date, it was a complete fucking clusterfuck. He makes this argument, you know, for uh, a more uh, open liberal approach. And then he also makes the argument that that is where, you know, the, the modern understanding of economics and human action, everything spawned from and particularly accelerated in America. And then he talks about how in 1913, you know, he had the rise of the Federal Reserve and all this sort of stuff. And then, he's, and, and then he says how, you know, capitalism, you know, began to fail. Like, but what they miss is that, like, you know, the, these nuances and these changes, like, the, you know, every time we've moved away from openness and, you know, the, the free, free principles and free market principles and private property, we've devolved into madness. And every time we've moved away from central planning and collectivism, we've evolved into some level of prosperity. These quote-unquote economists can't seem to, to fathom that. And, you know, I did a tweet the other day. You can tell the intelligence of an economist if they say something like institutions are where are the basis upon which we can build, you know, effective economies and societies where, you know, I think the opposite is true is institutions are a sign of the decay because I think effective societies emerge organically from, you know, the emergence of, you know, good ethics, values and principles that are built around a core set of rules and incentives. You know, so, so it's an emergent phenomena versus, you know, a top-down phenomena. So it, it's just really weird for me how, quote-unquote, academics, these so-called intellectuals, they're, they're just so inconsistent in their thinking. And I find the only real consistent thinkers out there are like libertarians, but who, who get liberty. So not, again, not the pseudo-libertarians, because I think there is a lot of them, but I'm like real, you know, like you guys, you know, a lot of good Bitcoiners, et cetera, that, you know, we get that and can stay consistent uh, on that thread throughout their arguments. I think it's funny the the minds of the Bitcoin space have been forced to espouse with, with all their previous conceptions about everything. They've had to kind of break everything down to first principles in order to even evaluate this phenomenon for, for what it really is because... Uh, all, all our previous paradigms of money were, were based on either gold or government money. And mm. in order to like really effectively evaluate whether this thing is a viable uh, money in the long term, we've had to start 
right from scratch. And I, th I think that's why you find such a high quality of individual thinkers in this space. And uh, I find that fascinating because it's kind of forced me to do that. You know, I had a lot of maybe status tendencies and, and a lot of, oh, well, the government should protect us. And, and I, you know, if you'd asked me three years ago, I probably would have been like, yeah, you need a government to protect us from this. But I realize now that individuals acting in their own best interests would have done a much better job. I mean, even if you look at the, the start of this whole thing, you know, there's the Great Firewall of China, and they're very controlling of their media. So we weren't really sure the information we're getting out, and yet we made all these decisions based on it. At least the U.S. they 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 were like, oh, it's not a big thing, and then it was like a super big thing, and and really the the populace, <laughs> they're just flailing in the wind trying to just follow <laughs> whatever the new narrative is, and they're like, oh, well, you know, now we if we save just one life or whatever, and it's <laughs> it's just it's interesting to watch. I think people just fail to just break the stuff down, look at the data and make decisions for themselves. Like, you know, like you were saying, just individually wearing masks or, or asking people on your own private property to wear masks, that, that decentralized organic response, I think would have been far more sane than, than what we've seen today. So I, I largely agree with you. Yes, but look at that. how fucking silly the conversation is. People who have bought this narrative, hook, line, and sinker. Like I saw Eric July was arguing on Twitter with Ninja last night. And, and Ninja was like, you know, I don't understand what's so hard, bro. Just wear a mask. Literally hundreds of thousands of people have died. Dude, hundreds of thousands of people die all the time from everything. It's, it's the nature of mortality. I mean, we're all mortals. We, we fucking die. We get sick. We get hit by cars. It just happens. Life such is a, a terminal disease, right? Exactly. It's such a pathetic argument. It's, it's a weak argument, and, and it's the easy fallback for people who can't think deeply. Kind of like what Ben was saying before is like, you know, I think Bitcoin's forced us all to think a lot deeper because you, you, you have to. Particularly, it, it reminds me a lot of how America was formed, you know, a quarter of a millennium ago. You, you had these thinkers who went somewhere else and, you know, had the opportunity to establish a new society. And instead of just willy-nilly copying, you know, where they came from, you know, or trying to change the existing system or any of that sort of stuff, that they really thought deeply about what this could look like, you know, what the trade-offs are, how to create a playing field, you know, that allowed freedoms for opportunities and for things like that, you know, and, and valuing things like the right to defend yourself, the, the freedom to speak. You know, I don't know all the um, amendments off the top of my head. You know, I, I feel like that was such a powerful uh, precursor. And we're, we're doing something similar with Bitcoin, you know, but I think now that we don't have physical place to go to <laughs> where we can think about how to reinvent society, you know, we, we've got this virtual realm upon which we can create these rules and you know fundamentally like the rules we need to start with are economic rules because by definition an economic rule is how an individual allocates their two uh, finite resources which is time and energy that's all we really have when you multiply that out amongst a bunch of individuals you know studying economics is studying you know this individual human action and, and this is so when you start thinking like that, then you start realizing sort of the profundity of all these Austrian economic thinkers. And again, like I said earlier, is it's that's not something I you know had a lot of past reading in, but it's it's like as I've started to read that, I've realized how that kind of thought or that that line of thinking just makes so much sense from a first principles basis. And these guys are, are the giants that we can all stand on now. And instead of having to reinvent everything, we can go back to some of these thinkers and learn from them particularly like i like my favorite so far is rothbard by a mile like i think he's 
his work is fucking incredible. Like, and his ability to stick with bashing this word now principles, but like, you know, the, the ideology and, you know, and, and where he starts from, he's able to take that thread all the way through his ideas is incredible. So yeah. So Bitcoin for me is like a, is a modern version of, you know, independence from the previous tyranny. And in this case, you know, like back then it was, you know, the monarch now it's more broadly the state, which, you know, has come in many forms, you know, whether on a national level or, you know, an international level through things like, you know, the WTO, the WHO, NATO, whatever other fucking dog shit word, you know, alphabet soup, you know, institution there is. And yeah, I, I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's, it's really people who get it, who are having these kind of, this level of depth of conversation are the rebels or the revolutionaries or the th- the thinkers that are helping shape this movement more than anything else. There's some nuance to what you were talking about at the beginning there that I want to tease out a little bit, particularly around the the American Revolution and the formation of the American Constitution. First, a narrative that I've seen recently is capitalism and socialism are both flawed. Therefore, we need a little bit of both. Um, we need to meet in the middle. I'm, I'm not going to get into specifically why that's wrong, because if you understand Austrian economics, you understand why that's wrong. But capitalism is the default state. Capitalism is descriptive, right? Statism and socialism are prescriptive solutions to certain entropies that happen within a society. Capitalism is the default description of how humans interact with one another via their incentives, right? Socialism, statism, it's, it's a prescriptive solution. So you look at what the founding fathers really tried to do when they framed the American Constitution. It was to make the republic as free as possible, fundamentally, in line with all of those foundational principles of human interaction, and then make those principles as resistant to change as possible. And this comes into what you were saying about the anti-fragility. You know this is true because if you go and actually study like the writings of, of Jefferson and Madison, you'll see Jefferson was talking about this after the formation of the Constitution. He was lamenting about the fact that they hadn't put a provision into the Constitution to prevent the government's ability to borrow money because he knew he was already watching it happen. He was watching the tendrils of the state spread. Like you said earlier, the state exists to further its own ends. It exists as an ends unto itself. It is an entity and it continues to grow and accumulate power. And and it's like an organism. It desires to continue to grow, to reproduce, to expand. The constitution was fundamentally created to limit the expansion of the state and preserve the fundamental principles of freedom. And yes, the Constitution has been bashed repeatedly for the last century or two. You know, if you really want to get into it, it started getting bashed up almost immediately. That's why Thomas Jefferson said, if I could have added one more thing to that Constitution, it would have been to prevent the state's ability to borrow because he saw the way that it was breaking down those protections that they put in place to make this society built around liberty as resistant to change as possible. 100%. 100%. I mean, I, I don't really have a comment there outside of that is exactly, you know, I think, analogous to, you know, the, the conversation around Bitcoin and, you know, it's one of its fundamental value propositions being this resistance to change, this resistance uh, to change. You know, it's like it's a set of rules that you can voluntarily opt into. You're welcome to be as free as possible, you know, inside constraints of these relatively broad and open rules 
like you said, the, the Constitution was the first real deeply thought out opportunity in history to do that. And, and as a result, like America became powerhouse of the world very, 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 very quickly. Like it, over, it leapfrogged fucking everyone. Like for, for anyone who wants to argue that, you know, anything else worked, like the, the only reason, like then this is where I get annoyed with, you know, people say, oh, you know, well, look at China, how quickly it's caught up. Dumb motherfucker. The only reason any of these um, commies and socialists and all this sort of stuff even have had the opportunity to rise up out of fucking poverty and complete, you know, destitution is because of the existence of the free market in America and the momentum that built in terms of, you know, technological evolution and, you know, personal liberties. You didn't have any of that. Like if China didn't have anyone to fucking sell to, you think they were going to come up and become the world's, um, what do they call it? The, the world's workshop. Get the fuck out of here. Like none, none of that stuff even exists. And again, I like, you know, I'm not American, but I can respect what, you know, what made so much sense. And th this is where these moron economists these days who sit there and try and, you know, make the point that you uh, mentioned earlier, which is, oh, capitalism doesn't work and socialism doesn't work. So let's, you know, do a blend of both. And they try and use examples like China and shit like that to, to, make, the, um, to make the opposite case. No, dickhead, that, you know, th these, these things didn't work. Um, and there's a reason they don't work. And the only reason they were able to rise up was because they went, they moved from completely prescriptive to partially, you know, descriptive, they were able to leverage the fact that technological and economic evolution had emerged out of free infrastructure that was based on this thing called the constitution in America. Like, you know, even down to the idea of like freedom to fucking speak, <laughs> like that, without that basis, we would still be in slums and dark ages and all of that sort of stuff. Not, none of the prosperity we take for granted today would have existed without the foresight and the thought of those forefathers. And, and even, you know, slightly prior to them with like the emergence of individual thinkers, whether it's um, Adam Smith or even, you know, people like Isaac Newton and all that sort of stuff, like all, all of these things had to happen. And, and a lot of that stuff, again, came from the West and this idea of, you know, individuals thinking for themselves that that's the that's the necessary ingredient you know for prosperity and again you know these people who can't think deeply enough who've never never ever taken a moment to read about history buy into like mimetic moronic narratives and become social justice warriors overnight fucking throw hashtags and black squares on the instagram and think they're fucking woke for a week or two before going back to their um sheltered lives that you know exist thanks to things like the constitution etc in the first place it's a strange strange fucking world man yeah well you see as the state expands in power you know american hoddle has this kind of concept of you know the last 50 years has just been this cascade of of power plays and i feel like the growing state is kind of like this backdrop of people that are in power of some kind you know they hold office and their job is literally to create regulations and control people even if they're intent is benevolent this paradigm is broken because now we, we see the erosion of some of this the foundations that this country was founded on that we are pontificating that were in essence excellent ideas of defending liberties and personal property but now you see you know the i think erosion of free speech in a sense it, it's very frustrating to me because i think this whole capitalism is broken thing 
is is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard because you know we don't have capitalism we have social monetarism and yeah. until people can realize that then you know we're never going to win this this narrative war that we're in now I can't remember if this is in Jordan Peterson's book as one of his rules I read it ages ago and I can't remember but you guys might be able to confirm or not but where he says defining things properly is is that one of the rules in his 12 rules just making sure things are defined properly before you proceed with taking a line of thought somewhere. I used to have respect for people like Dalio. You know, I read his book Principles, you know, a couple of years ago, and I thought it was pretty good. And, you know, I sort of went down the Dalio rabbit hole for a little bit. And then, you know, the, the more I read into his shit, the more I realized the guy's full of shit. Um, and then most recently, you know, I, I called out Chamath back in the day, thought he was great, he was sharp and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, th- these these two clowns, you know, running around saying shit like, oh, capitalism's broken because they can't, they, they haven't taken a fucking moment to actually define what capitalism is. So they try and frame capitalism, you know, in the context of the shit show that we've got in the world today, which is so fucking far from capitalism, it's not even funny it's lost complete touch with the notion of capitalism. And then they have the audacity or the arrogance, or let's call it the ignorance to, to turn around and say, I've done lots of thinking on this and spoken to people. And, you know, I'm writing a new chapter of my book of why capitalism needs to change. Hey, shut the fuck up, man. Like you, you're a beneficiary of the, you know, the remnant of capitalism, you know, that existed. Um, and then furthermore, you're a um, beneficiary of the unfair convergence, thanks to Cantillon-type effects, of this uh, socialist monetarism system. So, so you, you've benefited unfairly over everyone else, and then you want to sit here and fucking preach to me about how the system needs to change. It's so hypocritical, man. And it's like I've lost all respect for fucking people like this because, again, they just can't stay consistent with an ideology, and they, they lack the intellectual depth to even inquire upon or define properly what it is, you know, they're making a point against. And that's so fucking weak. You know, that's the quickest way for me to determine whether someone's a moron or not. I'm not too familiar with Peterson's work other than listening to a couple of his lectures, but I actually really like the way Thomas Sowell defines this. I think it's in Intellectuals and Society. I'm not positive exactly where this comes from, but what he essentially says is that all statements are true, if the terms are loosely defined or if terms are free to be redefined, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So, which is exactly so, what you're seeing. And, and Alex, you, th- those guys are right about one thing that capitalism is broken, but it's broken by the maligned incentives of broken money. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Or, or if anything, you know, the current system is broken, you know, so, so what they should be arguing for is going back to capitalism but unfortunately, again, that's the importance of defining things clearly. And like Colin just said, then is the broader and less specific you define something, everything fucking becomes true. And I think Ayn Rand really talked about that really well in her, um, in her works, you know, talking about, you know, having some level of objectivism, you know, in the way we define things. So, you know, and, and all of the antagonists basically in her novels are these people who don't define things, you know, specifically. You know, it's like everything's wishy-washy, everything's, you know... Um, They're all relativists. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and nothing actually means anything. And as a result, everything could be true or not true. And, you know, nothing's fucking real. Existence um, isn't real. 
Yeah, and and you know you you get into this um, miasmic fucking reality where nothing matters anymore, nothing has any meaning. You know what the fuck are we here for? And then we move into nihilism and you know all sorts of other stuff. So it's got such ramifications. Now I understand Alex and me that you know has puts his you know psychology hat on and all of that sort of stuff. You know understands that there is a duality. So that there's a requirement to be specific uh, where it counts, but then also be open relative in your in your thinking uh, again where it counts taking a blanket fucking approach particularly interactions you know between human beings and you know and disregarding uh, first principles like uh, liberty and private property rights etc um, for some you know ideological viewpoint that's loosely substantiated through eastern philosophy or whatever other bullshit people want to help attribute to that line of thinking it's it's moronic it's it's lazy like i said it requires no intellectual vigor or intellectual capacity for that matter and it's just another sign of the strong men created good times and you know good times breeding a bunch of weak men and weak-minded people who've just had the ability to you know feel and live uh, entitled. This is why people used to read and write treatises. And this is why treatises are by definition, ruthlessly thorough, systematic descriptions of entire schools of thought. It's why human action and man economy and state are so damn thick. It's because they ruthlessly and systematically define everything from the very beginning all the way up until the most complex topics and people don't read treatises anymore because they're too damn lazy they would rather read some idiots 10 degrees of separation distilled thoughts of what was maybe originally thoughts that came from somebody who'd read a treatise you know i think of it like a game of telephone or like if if you were to pour like a, a pitcher of like Kool-Aid or something, and then add a little bit of water to it. That that little bit of water that you add is like your spin on the treatise that you read. And then you pass that glass to somebody else and then they read your work, right? And then they add a little bit of water to it and they pass it on. And you do that enough and what you end up with is completely a different substance than what you originally started with. Nobody reads treatises anymore. I, I could probably count the number of people I know who have read Human Action on a single hand. And that's people that I've met online, right? Yep, 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 yep. Now, look, I might temper that point with the idea that it's it's probably not feasible for, you know, everybody to have that level of thought. And then this is where, you know, hierarchies are really important, you know, and, and particularly the only functional hierarchies are of competence, you know, and they're all and they're dynamic hierarchies for anyone out there who's going to start to fucking talk about, oh, you know, but your hierarchy. Hierarchies are dynamic and they're competence-based for a reason, or at least the ones that last, because some, some people will go to that depth. And then, you know, but by definition, you know, depending on, you know, how curious you are, et cetera, how willing you are to sort of dig, you know, you'll, you'll probably absorb or learn or, you know, take information in at a more watered down level or at a more concentrated level. But that, that should then reflect, you know, in the results that you generally get in life. Not accounting for you know randomness because that's always you know that's something that we can't account for or can't remove from a system. But the fact that the society seems to have tendency, or particularly as collectivism grows, the tendency is to water down everything and to move away from depth of thinking or like you said these treatises is 
so that more and more people basically converge to the lowest rung of the hierarchy <laughs> so that there's no longer a hierarchy of competency anymore. It's, it's just a fucking flat level playing field of fucking monkeys who can't think for themselves and a couple people then who can quite easily direct those. But, you know, un, you know unfortunately for them, there comes a point at, that there's always at least uh, some free thinkers in each society which end up blowing that up to some extent. So, you know, those homogenous, single-layer collectivist societies don't seem to last because they, they collapse in on themselves. One of my favorite Mises quotes, I'm going to read it verbatim. I don't want to miss anything. The flowering of human society depends on two factors. The intellectual power of outstanding men to conceive sound social and economic theories and the ability of these men or other men to make these ideologies palatable to the majority. Really nice. Really, really nice. Well, I think, I mean, we're, we're engaged in that at the moment, right? Sure. Yeah, no. I, and, and I think this is where the smart men, the intellectuals that Mises is referring to here have failed over the last century or whatever. They have allowed bad ideas to beat them in presentation and in, and in culture cultural dominance for long enough that it's permeated the roots of the structure of society. And, and we're watching this happen right in real time right now, where you see in our society, or when I say our, I live in America, our society is breaking down culturally for a whole host of reasons. You know, Ben and I tend to think it's, it's largely socioeconomic and it's largely caused by the money. There are people who disagree, but they think that they're on the same side as the people in Hong Kong who are protesting against totalitarian government intervention. When you have these people here, they, they can't even think clearly enough through this to realize that what they're crusading for here is exactly what they're fighting against there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, dude, thank you. Thank you for like framing it like that because that's exactly... Exactly, exactly. The video that I made this morning, you know, a shameless plug, you know, for this little channel that I'm starting up, it was called Hypocrisy in Hong Kong. And it's basically what you just said then. It's these clowns that are out there who became woke last week because there was a hashtag trending, not because they understood anything, who, you know, went out to, you know, quote unquote protest after they called anyone else who was protesting for the right to go and work for their own subsistence. You know, they called them criminals and fucking uh, elderly killers. They went out and protest for some, effectively, you know, a Marxist organization, but even put that aside, like just an ideology that I understand with, with this premise that somehow America is the most racist fucking nation in the world, which is such a load of horseshit. Like none of these clowns would have any clue like how racist, you know, let's even just call a place like China for fuck's sake. You're not even allowed to put... You know, Disney, of all people, you know, this, this uh, organization has become like a fucking, you know, cuck media, basically. You know, th these idiots, you know, their posters that they're advertising their movies in China with aren't even allowed to have a black person on there. You don't hear a peep about that. You know, they go out and they, they protest for an ideology they don't understand. And then they demand that, you know, the collective be stronger and, you know, the collective is given, you know, more rights to force more laws to become more like the authoritarian regime that is now in the process of dismantling the very personal fucking freedoms of people uh, in a nation that's been largely 
free and prosperous for the last 50, 60 years, um, you know, and or longer. Um, it's just like, oh, it's maddening. It's like, you know, you, you don't hear a peep about, you know, the most criminal, I think, act that's happening today from a geopolitical perspective. But, you know, the woke warriors are running around, you know, thinking that they're coming from some moral fucking high ground because they've got a black square on their Instagram. It, it, it literally drives me mental. Like there, there, there could not be more inconsistency between the reason for being why clowns are going around for BLM versus why, you know, the, the free, innocent people of Hong Kong are out there trying to resist blatant fucking oppression and, you know, a takeover by an authoritarian state. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this world? It's really sad because these people are very frustrated. They know something's wrong and they think that the state can fix it. You know, and Colin and I are arguing that it's the broken money that has caused these socioeconomic problems that disproportionately probably affects black communities that all these people are really upset about. And that that is a state problem, the broken money, and that all these people are begging the state to fix it for them. It's not going to work out. I could tell anybody, I'm probably going to have to soundbite this, what I'm about to say, because nobody is going to have listened to this far. Any, anybody still listening to this podcast at this point is, is already in the choir. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm talking in, in the echo chamber, but that's literally why this podcast is called the Bitcoin echo chamber. Cause I know the only people fucking listening already agree with probably 90% of what I say. You know that what's going on in America right now is bullshit. Even if, even if you don't know any of the facts, even if you don't look at any of the data, just look at the corporate virtue signaling, right? All these companies that are standing up against systemic oppression, but at the same time, you know, out of, out of one side of their mouth, they're standing up for against systemic racism. And then on the other side of their mouth, they're buddy-buddy with China because of the profit incentives there. You want to talk about yeah. systemic oppression. You look at what China has done to Christians and Tibetans and the Uyghurs for the last century. You want to talk about systemic oppression? Go look at that. You, you you have no idea. Or go look at like the, the Falun Gong, right? The, the practitioners of Falun Gong. China has been ruthlessly weeding out and oppressing and killing and imprisoning people that don't tow party line for the last 80 years. It's funny because Alex Gladstein makes this really interesting point where we love to like point to China and be like, look, you know, China is the worst example, but we need to turn that lens on ourselves and see, well, where are the systemic breaks that we're starting to be more like China? And, and really, we should have a little bit of introspection about that. That, that really got me thinking because uh, it's, it's almost like a false dichotomy. Well, obviously, China is the problem and we're, you know, we're good here, but we should really look at ourselves and, and see how we could get back to first principles and liberty. Right. But I, I feel like that message is very easily misconstrued by anybody who doesn't think from first principles because they're going to say, well, yeah, obviously we've got a racism problem in America. If you don't think about that for more than just 10 seconds, you're going to come away with a lot of bad conclusions. hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm almost a little bit drained with like, I feel like it's, it's really interesting. It's, you know, when you have some logical consistency around your arguments, you feel like you're always just saying the same thing <laughs> anyway. It's like, you know, I feel like I'm broken a broken record just on repeat that, you know, I haven't changed my story. You know, I haven't, I haven't changed the things, you know, the values or the beliefs that I have. In fact, you know, if anything, I've just sharpened them 
and I, I just seem to be arguing with people who just keep swinging from fucking branch to branch, who, who just keep contradicting themselves with, you know, every new thing that they say because of whatever fucking new narrative the, um, the MSM have come up with. It's uh, disproportionately difficult to refute the endless stream of bullshit and to try to, you know, every single Twitter comment or whatever it is to, to go find every single person just spewing nonsense to refute all that and disproportionately takes up too much of your time. And for me, it's better to focus on just getting the first principle message right and getting it out and, and, and getting it as, as you said, palatable and understandable to as many people as possible and not worrying about all of the, the quote, haters. Yeah, and, and at the same time, it's good for us to be logically consistent. And we are the calm in the storm now more than ever. We are the remnant. Like we are the last line of defense of liberty. And we have got to continue to build out. You know, I, I look at WTF 1971 and it was a fluke. Like it happened on accident. But you look at how a very narrow, concise message that doesn't try to shove anything down people's throats, how successful it has been at getting people to think about things they normally would never consider um, and looking through a different lens. We, we have got to be more offensive in how we approach this problem. We can't continue to just brood within ourselves about how no one else understands these principles. At this point in the world, it's obvious you know, where things are heading. The winds have changed. We, we have to come up with more strategies you know, we have to think like Mises. What can we do to make this more palatable to the majority to, to shift the winds back in our favor? Really nicely put, man. You're 100% right. And yeah, despite how um, you know, exhausting it does become, I think it's also at the same time, it's, it's inspiring and energizing because aside from being the remnant, I think we all have a desire. And, and I think this is very healthy is to, to have an impact uh, on the world. I think that's actually a an innate incentive or an innate motivator for human beings to want to do something important. I've said this in podcasts before, it's that we're almost, you know, and, and, and not in an arrogant way, you know, we're not same level perhaps as the, as the founding fathers, you know, us remnant Bitcoiners and particularly, you know, the ones who, you know, will not deviate from those uh, first principles, no matter pandemic or scandemic or, you know, fucking riots or whatever the case is like, you know, we, we exist to hold the line um, because when the chaos erupts, kind of like what you said, Colin, is, you know, we're, we're that calm in amongst the chaos, in amongst that storm, you know. So, so you know, there, there always needs to be a grounding, you know, at the core, at the centre. Like I did a, I mean, for whatever everyone's opinion of Pomp is, like I, I did a catch up with him in September, October last year when I was in New York. And the, the topic of the podcast was why toxic Bitcoiners are incredibly important in the ecosystem, you know, like, and quote unquote, I say toxic, you know, with, with you know, air quotes, because it's become something we've fucking embraced, right? It's, it's just really, how, it's really interesting how, you know, Bitcoiners, we, we, we take an insult and then we, you know, we turn it into a label, like a, a tag that, you know, we, we, we wear with honor. It's really strong. That, that's called strong behavior. That's called, you know, responsibility and strength versus like fucking weakness and victimhood. Who, oh, they call me toxic. Agree but, um, amplify. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and what, what we spoke about was, you know, how important it is to have a core that doesn't fucking deviate because, you know, when, when people get lost on the path, 
you know, they need to, you know, get back in touch with something that is real, that hasn't moved. And that, that's very, very, very synonymous with, you know, Bitcoin's, one of Bitcoin's core propositions, which is, you know, TikTok next block, like it continues on, it doesn't change, you know, the, the rules are there, we, we can all see them, it doesn't give a fuck what happens out there in the world, um, you know, it continues. And, and that same, that same essence, I think, permeates through, you know, what the so-called toxic Bitcoin maximalists um, represent. And, and that, that's, yeah, so to your point, Colin, I think 100%, man, like continuing to do this is to use the more religious Bitcoiners aphorisms. It's like, you know, we're doing God's work, quote unquote, not, not that I'm religious, but, you know, that's it's kind of what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, I won't get into it right now because we're just about out of time, but I really do believe personally that if you study these foundational principles closely, they align really well with a lot of, you know, what's quote unquote God's law in the Bible. Uh, they're, they're just foundational principles of human interaction that generally when applied and, and adhered to make the world a more harmonious, more cooperative, more functional place. So yep. whether you're religious or not, you know, whether you believe in the wrath of God, you can't argue that, you know, the ideas of, of private property, like you shall not steal. You shall not commit violence against others. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. Whether you believe that's God's law and bad consequences that arrive from not following those rules are God's wrath or not, doesn't matter. Does Bitcoin fix all this? Does the embracement of private property fix these kind of broken ideological machinations in our society? <laughs> I, I think... So, so, so that, that's an interesting meme, and, you know, and I'm, I'm actually of the opinion that Bitcoin fixes a lot of things like that. And, and I mean, I don't know if you guys remember my, when I flipped out about that stupid post that um, that chick made from Lolly, where she's like, oh, you know, Bitcoin fixes a lot of things, but it doesn't fix races. It's like, shut the fuck up. And I kind of lost my shit with that. And for me, it was about like, you know, I do believe Bitcoin fundamentally fixes, you know, a lot of these things. And, and, and not because it's some magic you know, antidote that, you know, people will somehow become more moral. What, what, what it does is it, it does a couple things. Number one, it creates a, a playing field where the incentives are pretty fucking clear, number one. Number two, it lowers, so, so it makes private property and the protection of wealth fundamentally more functional because it increases the cost of attack and it lowers the cost of defense. And I think throughout history, that, that's been one of the more difficult things. And in fact, as as societies have emerged, you know, if we take a page out of, you know, the sovereign individual, it's been this sort of mega political play of, you know, how violence is used to direct, I guess, you know, behavior of humans. The ability to use violence to direct masses of human beings is, you know, fundamentally diminishing now with this swing back to, you know, decentralization and, you know, personal sovereignty through the entity, through mathematics, as opposed to, you know, the, the agreement of human beings. And I, I think that's the basis of why, you know, Bitcoin fixes a lot of these things, because, you know, we all work fundamentally in our own self-interest. Like, you, you can't remove that from human beings. You can't remove that from any organism or from any form of life you know the outcome of a form of life is to to continue you know, to perpetuate when you optimize those incentives uh, intelligently and when you build in really the two most powerful things that are built into bitcoin is this uh, voluntary component you know so you can opt in or opt out 
and the fact that private property rights are built into it and protected via mathematics that you cannot corrupt. So, so that's like, so like those two fucking ingredients are so incredibly powerful, you know, the transparency to that as well. Like the idea that it's, you know, it's all there, not, not just, you know, all the transactions on the ledger, but the rules of the game are all there, you know, so, you know, inability for anybody to, to take to get an unfair advantage. Yeah. So let's just call it those three things, those three fundamental ingredients form the basis upon which Bitcoin can fix a lot of things without having to actively try and fix them. You know, they, they'll naturally uh, fix themselves. That's, I think, the power of Bitcoin fixes this, you know, really exists. Change the incentives and change the outcome, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, like, but kind of like what I said is like, you know, the, the incentives, but also the guarantees around those incentives, right? We can change incentives all day long, but if, you know, there, there's no guarantee, and this is why I love the idea of guaranteeing it in fucking math, like, because th- then there is no authority to guarantee that shit. Like, you know, the, the, the state was a necessary evolution in the way human beings uh, collectively cooperated. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the church decayed. And, you know, the rise of the state was actually, you know, a form of liberation back then, as with all social contracts that are, you know, agreed to between one man and another and anything that gets institutionalized, you know, it it ends up decaying. Uh, Simple as that. You know, you create an entity and, you know, it goes through a life cycle, whereas, you know, math isn't subject to, you know, that same life cycle. It's, It's, you know, you don't have one plus one becoming, you know, more important and less important through some bell curve distribution. Like, you know, it's always the same so and i think that's that's also what kind of almost makes me think that you know bitcoin is kind of at least from a from a monetary sense or at least from you know the basis upon which to build society it's kind of, it's almost like the deal and end all at, at least for planet earth you know we, we might have to do something else you know in other solar systems if we ever expand out there but like i just can't see how you how you trump you know math time and energy you know combined into this this substrate you know, that we can build society off. So it's, it's fucking profound, man. Yeah, I think the, the most profound thing you said, and there was a lot in there, <laughs> was the fact that Bitcoin changes uh, the, the dynamic that defense of personal property is now used through mathematics rather than violence. And I think yeah. that's one that you really got to marinate on to really understand. So well said, dude. Thank you. All right, Alex. So we've been going a little over an hour now. I think it's probably a good place to wrap this up. We really appreciate you coming on, man. You got anything else that you want to add before we get going or anything you want to plug? Dude, the, the only thing I'll really plug is, I mean, if, if anyone hasn't checked out the Bitcoin Times, like I started off with this rant that was supposed to be a talk, which turned into a whole little publication, you know, that I printed and did a second round with, I think there were some people involved. There was Gigi, Rory, Haas, Nick Carter, uh, Breedlove. Who else was in there? Uh, Connor Brown and I think Dan Held, you know, so, so that, that was really good. I, I want to do another one this year. I, I have a short list of writers that I want to be in there. So, you know, I'm looking for a couple of people for this next edition. And then, yeah, probably the newest thing. I mean, everyone kind of, I think, knows that I'm working on Amber. So if you're in Australia and you want to stack Bitcoin, fucking jump on Amber. But really, the, the only other thing I'll plug is this new channel. It's called Wake Up. Um, it's on YouTube. If you just search Wake Up and then my surname is Fetsky. You'll find it. I did one video last year, which which I pulled apart that stupid interview between Dan Tapiero and Raul Powell, where everyone was like, oh, yeah, the Insta's coming. You know, the macro guys get Bitcoin now. And like, I, I watched that thing and I was like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? So, you know, I, I politely 
dismantled that. And, and my intent back then was to start doing a bunch of videos, but then, you know, a week later I went to Riga and then since then I've been on the road. So I never got to kick off that channel, but anyway, I've done another six episodes this week, so I'm going to slap them up there. And if people want to jump on and listen to me rant, by all means, check it out. All right, guys, welcome back. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Alex. Don't forget that you can find all of our episodes at bitcoinechochamber.com. As well, if you're listening to us on Spotify or iTunes and you wanted to check out some of the links in the show notes, the links don't show up on Spotify or iTunes, so you can find all those show notes links on the website at bitcoinechochamber.com. As well, if you want to get in touch with us, if you have questions or comments about the show or you just want to talk to Ben or I, you can reach out to us at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com or you can hit us up on Twitter. My Twitter is heavilyarmedc and Ben's Twitter is mrcoolbp. Those are both also linked in the show notes down below. We love talking to you guys. We love hearing from you guys, even if you just want to reach out and say thanks for the podcast. If you guys are interested in hearing more from Ben and myself on a regular basis, you can subscribe to our newsletter. It's basically just an economics newsletter. Right now it's been daily. I'm going to try to keep that going as long as I can, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. You can subscribe to that at WTF1971.com. It's not WTF happened in 1971.com. The newsletter is a separate domain, WTF. 1971.com and you'll find an archive there of all the newsletters as well if you just want to read them there you can you don't have to actually subscribe to the email list but guys as always i really appreciate your continued support on this show i'm trying to continue bringing good content and getting guests on so please if you enjoy the show leave some reviews or thumbs up or stars on whatever platform it is that you're listening to because that helps me grow the audience and the bigger my audience gets the easier it is for me to get good guests on and continue producing more good content that's all i got for this one again hope you guys enjoyed it and i will be coming back at you soon